Psalm 78. But before we get there, do you have hope? Having hope is of utmost importance in life, and the secular world even understands it. Um, in the Count of Monte Cristo, Alexandre Dumas wrote this. Live then and be happy, beloved children of my heart, and never forget that until the day God will deign to reveal the future to man, all human wisdom is contained in these two words, wait and hope. But it's also biblical. When we lose hope in God, we live as nothing more than an unbeliever. Isaiah 38, 18 says this, Those who go down to the pit do not hope for your faithfulness. Those who do not hope, they are those who go down to the pit. That is hell. Romans 15, 13 says, May the God of hope, God is hope, fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. We are to abound in hope. And then Romans 8, 24 says this, For in this hope we were saved. Hope is of utmost importance in life. Why is this true? Because hope is simply future faith. We are saved by grace through faith and hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it sounds wonderful to have hope. It's just not normally our reality. We have a horrible inability to truly hope. But do you know why? Do you know why it is that you lose hope? If you can think about it for a few seconds, why is it that you lose hope? Why is it that any of us lose hope? Psalm 78 tells us that it is because we forget the works of God. Why are those two connected? Why are hope and God's works connected? Because in as much as we remember the works of God, we will see God as all-powerful, and we will have nowhere to place our hope in but Him. And when we do, when we do place our hope in God, we obey and we glorify God and we enjoy Him. But the flip side of that is also true. In as much as we forget the works of God, we will see God as all puny and we will seek to place our hope in anything else beside God. And so we lose hope and we live as nothing more than an unbeliever. So then our question is, how do we strengthen our hope? If we see the utmost importance of hope, how do we strengthen it in our lives? We see the works of God. We see God for who he truly is. And then we obey him because of it. So how do we do this? We're going to walk through this psalm. It's a psalm of uh, Asaph. He was uh, kind of, if you know David, he was kind of David's uh, second in command. Um, and so he was also a, a writer of psalms, and he would sing and, and perform before uh, with uh, instruments. But we're going to walk through Asaph's psalm together to see, and we'll see the history of God's people and all of these works of God so that we may hope in him. So, starting in verse 1. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Now, this psalm, this is the only command found in the entire psalm. 
It, is, it doesn't explicitly call us or command us to do anything, but listen. Listen. Verse two, I will open my mouth in a parable. And just pausing there, this is the clue to Psalm 78. This is the understanding of it. It's a recounting of Israel's history, but it's not just a history. It's a history with the purpose of teaching a spiritual truth. It uses one realm of life to illustrate another realm of life. So he keeps going. I will utter dark sayings from of old, and they are dark because they are real. But God shines in the darkness. Verse three. Things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. So what they would do is God's people would sit down with their children and their grandchildren and they would just recall the history of Israel. They would talk about how uh, they, God called Abraham and, and to live in this wilderness and then they would talk about Moses and the parting of the Red Sea and how God was merciful to them despite their sin. And they would talk about the fact that they were sinners, but God was merciful. And this would help their children to know. They would see, man, my hope should be in God. This is the God who can part, rip, part the sea. My hope should be in him. Verse five, he, God, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers to teach to their children so that they might hope in him. Six, uh, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children, so that, here's the purpose of all of that, so that they should set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. Here's the whole point of the song. That we may set our hope in God, that we may not forget the works of God, and that we meet, and that we may keep His commands. Or, uh, stated negatively, look at verse eight. That they should not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation whose heart was not steadfast, whose spirit was not faithful to God. We lose hope when we lose sight of the works of God. And that, in turn, leads to sin and rebellion and disobedience. So how do we strengthen our hope? We see the works of God. We see God for who he truly is in those works. And we obey him because of it. What did these stubborn and rebellious men do? What's, what's the opposite of that? Look at verse 9. The Ephraimites, which is just uh, the largest, one of the largest tribes of Israel, they were armed with the bow, and they turned back on the day of battle. Verse 10, they did not keep God's covenant, but refused to walk according to his law. They forgot his works and the wonders that he had shown them. So this isn't a real battle. Remember, this is a parable, but it's a spiritual battle. They had everything spiritually they could ever need. God had provided them with everything in himself, but they did not keep God's covenant. In this spiritual battle, they were armed with the bow of God himself by his covenant, but they refused to walk according to his law. They cowered away from the fight. Why? Because they forgot his works, and they lost their hope, and so they disobeyed. They were rebellious. What are these works, then? Look at verse 12. In the sight of their fathers, he performed wonders in the land of Egypt, in the fields of Zoan. 
he divided the sea and let them pass through it and made the waters stand like a heap. This is the parting of the Red Sea. In the daytime, he led them with a cloud and all the night with a fiery light. He split rocks in the wilderness and gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. He made streams come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. Now just think about what that would look like. You're in the desert. Water coming out of a rock. A fiery pillar during the night and a cloud during the day. The presence of God in a cloud and a fiery pillar in the skies and rocks breaking over as rivers in the desert, in the wilderness. But the works and wonders of God weren't enough for them. Look at verse 17. Yet they sinned still more against him, rebelling against the Most High in the desert. They tested God in their heart by demanding the food they craved. They spoke against God, saying, Can God spread a table in the wilderness? He struck the rock so that water gushed out and streams overflowed. Can he also give bread or provide meat for his people? This is a bold, bold claim from mere mortals. Can God actually do this? Can God really provide here? It's completely dishonoring to who God is. It is unbelief, and it is punishable by death. He just made water come out of a rock in the desert. But surely he can't do this. He can't provide here. God had given them what they needed. And that was enough. But they wanted more. The, the key there is, is their craving. God gave them what they needed, but they craved more. They wanted more. L do you hear the Garden of Eden? Everything is before you, but don't eat this one. So rightfully and justifiably so, we get verse 21. Therefore, because of this sin, when the Lord heard, he was full of wrath. The works and wonders of God are not merely confined to protection and mercy. Mercy means nothing without a wrath to be merciful from. God is a just God who is for his own glory. He will not let his name go on profaned. So, a fire was kindled against Jacob. His anger rose against Israel. Why? Verse 22, because they did not believe in God and did not trust his saving power. This alone is reason for eternal punishment in hell. Not murder, not adultery, but unbelief. Unbelief will be the reason why men and women will dwell in hell forever. This is the issue of sin. Living in sin is nothing more than an unbelief and a lack of trust, a lack of faith. And it is utterly offensive to God who is able to save. The God who is worthy of all faith and trust and hope. Verse 23. Yet... He commanded the skies above and opened the doors of heaven and he rained down on them manna to eat and gave them the grain of heaven. Why did God not smite them at this point? Why does he remain merciful to them for a time? Verse 25. 
man ate of the bread of the angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he led out the south wind. He rained meat on them like dust, winged birds like the sand of the seas. He let them fall in the midst of their camp all around their dwellings. And they ate and were filled, for he gave them what they craved. This is not a good thing. They know the law. They know the testimony and the commandments. They know that their cravings lead them to sin. It's why they have the law in the first place, to lead them to their ultimate delight, to show this is the boundary. Don't go past this boundary because you're, what you're searching for there is not there. If you follow these boundaries, it will be there. But they rebel. And they think, if I just had my heart's desire, if I just had my stomach's craving, then I could finally be at rest, then I could finally be happy. This is worshiping another God. This is what happens in Romans 1 with sexual immorality, but the heart issue is still the same. Listen, claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. This is idolatry. Therefore, God gave them up in the desires of their hearts, cravings, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. Verse 30. But before they had satisfied their craving, while the food was still in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and he killed the strongest of them and laid low the young men of Israel. This is not just a wrathful Old Testament God. He's the same forever. But God exacts the deserving judgment on his people for their sins. The wages of sin is death. Perhaps the most unbelievable part of all of this, though, even though we know it well, is verse 32. In spite of all of this, they still sin. Despite his wonders, despite the wonders of, of his mercy and despite the wonders of his wrath, they did not believe. What's going to make it work? What's going to work here? What's going to make you believe? 33, so he made their days vanish like a breath and their years in terror. When he killed them, they sought him. They repented and sought God earnestly. Through death, faith arose. And for a split second, they were living faithfully, but then the next verse in 35, uh, no, sorry, they were living faithfully in verse 35. They remembered that God was their rock, the most high God, their redeemer. However, verse 36, one verse later, but they flattered him with their mouths. They lied to him with their tongues. Their heart was not steadfast toward him. They were not faithful to his covenant. It took all of one verse for things to go back to the way they were in sin. If this psalm, if the exodus of God's people, if the grand narrative of the whole Bible are not pictures of our lives, God gives grace, it's not enough, so we sin. God judges that sin, we repent. God gives mercy, that's still not enough, and we sin yet again over and over and over and over and over again. It's the same pattern. Isaiah 57 11 through 13 says this, Whom did you dread and fear, so that you lied and did not remember me? 
did not lay it to heart. Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me, you do not believe in me? When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. That is irony. Cry out to the things you made out of wood. See what they do. When we lose hope in God, our actions will be the evidence of our heart's allegiance and worship. Whom do you fear? Man or God? Food or God? Sex or God? God is inexhaustibly merciful. It seems, as we read this psalm, that God isn't truly wrathful or vengeful because of how patient and forgiving and gracious he truly is. It doesn't make sense this way. Verse 38, yet he, being compassionate, for what reason? What reason can, the, the, can sinful Israel give to like why God should be compassionate here? They've done nothing good. He's been merciful over and over and over again, and they've still sinned. Yet he, being compassionate, atoned for their iniquity and did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often and did not stir up all his wrath. This is mind-blowing. God himself made up for the wrongdoing of his rebellious people. He was the one who atoned for it. He covered their iniquities. How? How, how is this possible? How did this even happen? In the Old Testament, he would do so with an atoning sacrifice. Sometimes they would slaughter. Sometimes they would let it go into the wilderness, and that was the sacrifice. But for believers in the New Testament era, which would be us, he did so by an atoning sacrifice, capital S. Jesus became the sacrifice whose blood would atone for the blood needed for justice. Blood had to be spilled for sin. The wages of sin is still death and it will always be death. But God, being compassionate for his own sake, not for our sake, atoned for our iniquity by taking on human flesh to be the vessel by which God's wrath could be poured out fully. In his sacrifice, we are atoned for. We are covered by the blood of Jesus. He was patiently holding back his wrath with humanity because he was able to quickly pour it out on Jesus. How do we get it? This amazing, doesn't make any sense, mysterious grace. How do we get it? God gives it freely because he's compassionate. It's not up to us to live any certain way, to live with all of these good deeds in order to get it. It's simply because God is compassionate. But it is for those who place their hope in God. For those who trust him. For those who have faith in his finished work on the cross that fully did atone for our iniquities, for our sins. The God, the great God of the cosmos, Yahweh himself, the creator of everything we see and know, the God of all glory. Verse 39. He remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and comes not again. What a glorious mystery that God has compassion on us and that Jesus himself 
becomes our living hope. No other God provides a hope that lives. No other God provides a hope that lives. And yet, the God who was fully, he did not have to do it. We all, every single one of us, every single human being in the history of creation deserves nothing but wrath. And yet God says, I'm going to give you hope. It's because he's compassionate. There's no other reason. Asaph then turns to the Exodus story, probably because it reminds him so much of his own life and, and the cycle of sin. Uh, but he, <clears throat> he recalls what happens. And we'll see just the works of God, how powerful the hand of God is in verse 40. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. They tested God again and again and provoked the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power or the day when he redeemed them from the foe, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the fields of Zone. He turned their rivers to blood so that they could not drink of their streams. Listen, these, this is what God does. 45 he sent among them swarms of flies, which devoured them, and frogs, which destroyed them. 46. He gave their crops to the destroying locust and the fruit of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hail and their sycamores with frost. He gave over their cattle to the hail and their flocks with thunderbolts. He let loose on them with his burning anger, wrath, indignation, and distress a company of destroying angels. He made a path for his anger. He did not spare them from death, but gave their lives over to the plague. He struck down every firstborn in Egypt, the firstfruits of their strength in the tents of Ham. Then he led out his people like sheep and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them in safety so that they were not afraid, but the sea overwhelmed their enemies and he brought them to his holy land to the mountain which his right hand had won he drove out the nations before them he apportioned them for a possession and he settled the tribes of israel in their tents notice how much work the israelites did there absolutely zero how feeble our minds are to see and to know the God who does such things as this and yet lose hope in it. Our hope is strengthened when we see the works and wonders of God's and our actions will show whether or not we truly believe it, whether or not we see him for who he is in, in the works that we see. Because if he is glorious and mighty, our actions should reflect that. Should reflect that. Yet, our actions so often do not, and that is continuing in the Psalm of 56. Yet, even though all of this has happened, yet they tested and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned away and acted treacherously like their fathers. They twisted like a deceitful bow. For they provoked Him to anger with their high places. They moved Him to jealousy with their idols. When God heard, he was full of wrath, and he utterly rejected Israel. He 
He forsook his dwelling at Shiloh, the tent where he dwelt among mankind, and delivered his power to captivity, his glory to the hand of the foe. He gave his people over to the sword and vented his wrath on his heritage. Fire devoured their young men, and their young women had no marriage song. I don't know why those two are together. Their priests fell by the sword, and their widows made no lamentation. Then the Lord awoke as from sleep, like a strong man shouting because of wine. And he put his adversaries to rout. He put them to everlasting shame. We see the cycle of sin and then wrath, but mercy. All of it is wrapped up in this crazy thing called life. And then Asaph shows the true hope in God. That it is humble. It's humble like what we're going to see in Judah. And humble like what we're going to see in David. It's not proud and idolatrous. Verse 67, he rejected the tent of Joseph. He did not choose the tribe of Ephraim because of their sin, because of this over and over and over and over and over again sin. But he chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loves. He built his sanctuary like the high heavens, like the earth, which he has founded forever. He chose David, his servant, and took him from the sheepfolds. From following the nursing ewes, he brought him to shepherd Jacob, his people, Israel, his inheritance. With upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand. Now, we know David. We've all heard the story of Bathsheba. What does it mean he shepherded them and guided them with his skillful hand, with an upright heart? He also sinned. In it, we are to see Jesus, the greater David, the Lion of Judah. And as much as we remember the works of God, we will see God as all-powerful, and we will have nowhere to place our hope in but in Him. And when we do, we obey and glorify God and enjoy Him but the flip is also true. Inasmuch as we forget the works of God, we will see God as all puny. And we will seek to place our hope in anything else beside God. And so we will lose hope and we will live as nothing more than an unbeliever. So how do we strengthen our hope? How do we strengthen our hope? We see the works of God. We see God for who he truly is, and we obey him because of it. This was the truth that the hearers of this musical psalm from Asaph, as he's singing and leading the congregation in worship, they looked back at the works of God to see their hope, that they might live according to his commands. They, they came, they gathered it wasn't a Sunday morning, but they gathered in the same way that we have gathered today, and we sang as a breath of fresh air, God, it is you that has saved me. But they also looked back and they saw the rebellion of their fathers, and in that, they saw themselves. They saw, yeah, that's, that's me too. I, I have idols. There's not a single one of us in the room that does not have our idols. But in seeing, our own in seeing our own rebellion, we see this sin. We see how big it is. But even more than that, we see the mercy of God. There are 
30 mentions of sin and rebellion in this psalm, and there are 33 mentions of God's mercy. The fact that God was over and over and over and over again patient and merciful to their rebellion, the fact that God had compassion on them, the fact that God had atoned for their iniquities, did all of the work, that's what strengthened their hope. Because when they looked at their lives, like, where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We can't do anything but sin. It was the mercy of God that strengthened their hope. For us, we have even less of an excuse. Because what Asaph was writing here, he didn't see the fullness of it yet. He knew that redemption and atonement were realities, and those realities gave him hope, but what they merely hoped one day would come, we know by name. We need look no further than the cross to see the most astounding work and wonder of all. That God himself bore our sins that we might live. We do not need to see signs and wonders today in our time. We need only look back. We do not need to see a manifestation of God or his glory. We, we do not need to ex experience God in new ways. We don't need anything else but what God has already provided for in himself at the cross. And we strive to find all of our sustenance in the manna from heaven, Jesus Christ. Hebrews 6 Verse 18 and 19 says this. <clears throat> we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. What is this hope? We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. It's Jesus that is our hope. And in him, we see the work and wonder of God, and it is sure and steadfast as an anchor in the waves of rebellion and sin. This psalm doesn't explicitly call us to command, call us or command us to do anything but listen, but in listening, we see what our hope does for us. It calls us to wonder and awe at the works of God that he has accomplished on our behalf. It calls us to hope in him by those works and to obey his commands. It calls us to be brave in the midst of battle by this hope. It calls us to remember the works of God by this hope. It calls us to be content in hope and not crave from our hearts. It calls us to believe by hope. It calls us to trust by hope. It calls us to seek him and repent by hope. It calls us to forsake our idol worship by hope that our true worship will fulfill us. And the great grace to us is that even these works are guided by his skillful hand and his upright heart. Our hope is not found here. We are guided by his skillful hand and his upright heart as we see the work and wonder of the cross. 
where a sinful and rebellious humanity, you and me, we are made new. And as we see the finished work of the cross, we abound in hope. One way that we remember the work of Christ is by the Lord's Supper. As we sit with the elements of the body and the blood, we hold our manna from heaven. Everything we have ever or will ever need, we have it. And so we remember how it is possible, how any of this hope is possible to have. It is only by the cross. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to remember the good news of the gospel. If you've been adopted into the family of faith by faith, then you're welcome to the table to partake as family. However, if you are in unrepentant sin, or if you have not yet placed your faith in Jesus and accepted the free gift of grace, I ask that you remain in your seat. 1 Corinthians says you would eat and drink in an unworthy manner, and I don't want that for you. But if you're in unrepentant sin, God has given you this text this morning to show you his mercy, but for you you to also see the folly of your idols. It's meaningless. Return to your true hope by believing in the gospel again today that your sins, they are atoned for by a merciful God. If you're an unbeliever, the hard truth that I want you to hear is that you have no hope. You have no hope that that is alive. And what hope does a dead hope give to you? You know where sin leads you. You know it is never enough. That's by design. Forsake your idols, repent of your sins, and trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ for your salvation alone. There is hope for you. Believe today. Maybe you're here, but you feel heavy and weighted down. You feel without hope. See the work and wonder of Jesus Christ, our living hope, and be encouraged that it does not depend on you to feel it. It does not depend upon you to prepare for it. The only thing you bring is your need for it. So bring it well. It is freely provided to you in Jesus. Believe in Jesus alone who is your hope. For all of us, here's our prayer during this time. Father, we admit and confess that we need this body and this blood to cover our hope in idols. Would you, by your grace, allow us to hope in you by your work on the cross that we may live accordingly. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to pray through what it is God has given you. Maybe this is a time where you forsake your idols. Maybe this is a time where you repent of your sins. Maybe this is a time where you think about the hope that Jesus has provided for you. Whatever it is God has given you, think about it, ponder on it in your heart, and when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room, Grab them, 
bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them all together here in a minute.